0: And I'm not a really good American because I like to form my own
1: opinions. Huh? What? There's tons of examples of corporate greed, inequality, and disregard for the environment that make people wonder if
0: markets are evil. And they are. Maybe police is right about America being the land of opportunity. And maybe it has a point about the machinery of capitalism being oiled with the blood of the workers where it's like hey wake up liberals you can't always do uh, sometimes you gotta uh, you know uh, but that's a that's that's actual quote from carmel in recognizing a communist physical appearance counts for nothing if he openly declares himself to be a communist we take his word for it um if i were to ever start a country with a communist government wink wink wait 12 years Man are seduced by communists and women, so much so that they deem communists nice. Communists murdered mostly the Nazis. Bottom-up, horizontal connection, sharing at all levels is key. Describing is anarchy.
1: Are you an anarchist?
0: You mean, am I a member?
1: An anarchist group, yes.
0: Anarchists have a group?
1: I believe so, sure.
0: What kind of garbage is that? Oops, my anarchy symbol.
1: Welcome, welcome to the Three Left Show. You're listening to the Three Left Show. I'm your host, Dan Platt. This program covers news, issues, and anything of interest from a radical and revolutionary left perspective for the curious or the committed, promoting a post-capitalist present and future via direct democracy and a commons economy, discussing the means and ends of a multi-tenancy left that is of itself and for itself, the meeting point of socialism, anarchism, and ecology. We proudly wave the flags of the three left, so I'm still getting a little bit of echo, at least I know for sure uh, the audio is going out, so boy oh boy, I've got a show for you, one of the last, got two more after this, so this is the third to the last two hour show, Um, I'm sure there's something on the Pacifica network that I'll slide in after I do one hour, and then I'll have a, a second hour, but I'll explain all of that. In another month's time, though, maybe you've noticed I've been going every other week. Uh, I shouldn't be doing that for the rest of the month. I'm going to go full charge with everything else that's going on in my life. Um, As, of course, there are so many others who have so much more to deal with. So why should I complain? But we should always, actually, I would say we should always complain about how much we have to do in our lives. How much um, stuff we're working through. It's too much, and we shouldn't have to deal with it. We should not have to deal with the injustices of our society. We need to get mad. We need to organize about it, not despair. But enough of the empty platitudes of, uh, of, of whatever. This is going to be an episode about housing. First half, I'm going to cover the issues of housing, the problems of capitalism on housing, Uh, yes, I'm gonna do that commie thing of just complaining about the system. Oh, it's just capitalism's fault for everything. Well, yeah, it is kind of a lie that individual responsibility thing that was just made up in the 50s. Um, I I saw a headline. It was an article explaining it. I can give you the boy played version since I've kind of read versions of that so much already that this um, for before the 50s, before the Red Scare, you know, before. Communism was the enemy of all America and everything good in the world uh, or anything left wing, uh, you know, pinko, um, even if you just had some sympathies, if you if you were a social Democrat that made you a pinko, you're still suspect, almost an enemy, but pretty much an, already an enemy of America. Right. And uh, so we've kind of been a very right wing reactionary nation ever since with certain um, movements and whatever, trying to push back against that to say, no, we, we are community. So, otherwise, I have some good energy. Just got over, not just got over, but it's been a while, enough time to get over cold. My voice isn't as gravelly. I was going to be live streaming um, last weekend. I will be live streaming this weekend, Sunday, uh, with uh, Bread Theory on Twitch. Uh, which I can be found there uh, where I, I've been doing a series with him where I read pamphlets just, um, basically uh, from a 1950s box of pamphlets about how to organize and how to act politically um something that for the last several decades but really like at least as far as just um it was i was just listening to a podcast actually about how social media got a lot of even even really like full organizers to kind of try to go just for the aesthetic of having people in the streets and thinking like that's that's what matters that's good but you just can't post something on instagram get everybody mad and and expect something to happen you won't even get people in the streets anymore because you know we did all of that in 2020 and it really didn't affect anything it wasn't Actually doing politics, which is being on the ground, being organized and and, and taking action in mass in a sustained, supported way where we're all supporting each other and not doing, you know, kind of buying in. But anyway, all that aside, because I'll be circling back to that, you know, in the in the next two episodes after this. Now I'm just wrapping up with stories that I've collected over the years, as well as finding some more new or recent ones to fill in the gaps so I can do a kind of wrap-up episode to talk about housing issues. So the first one, I'm going to return to my perennial favorite punching bag, Strong Towns. A blog site, but also an organization, actually, that does training for new urbanists, pretty much it's a representation of the new urbanist movement in civic in a civic org format non-profit does a conference uh on the yearly basis you know it's about training people to act in their in their cities and municipalities to make a positive impact in a sort of non-radical non-threatening way i think as far as positions and what they do or rather you know what they're for there's a lot of agreement between a revolutionary like myself and them but i disagree with how milquetoast their kind of politics are um Rather, how it's like. Well, we got to play ball with the major parties. We're not going to be partisan about this because obviously, a good, healthy, strong town is something everyone should agree with. And but also, there's the big strain between myself and any kind of reformism uh, as could could be pointed out uh, in various interviews I've been listening to over the week and a half, particularly relating to you the Ukraine war, is that. Um, but any kind of war, really is that there is a divide between a left that is internationalist and cares about all life as if it's the same and sees America or where you live, the local, in a global context because we're all the same, we're all equal. You know, There's an egalitarianism there, a real one, versus a left oh, or liberals or left-leaning, whatever, that are still nationalists, that still have this baked-in idea that America matters more than the rest, because I, I live here, and America matters first. And even well-meaning people still get like dragged into reactionary politics because they have some kind of nationalism. They'll be towing the major party-slash-corporate you know corporate line on things like war, like you know, fighting Russia and China. It's like, look, I'm not saying they're perfect states or societies, But I care, I think a Chinese life is as valuable as mine, that I think, you know, it's just as democratic or it's just as empowered or disempowered. You know, I'm not going to disregard entire uh, continents, you know, and say this, you know, these are enemy. Like when people talk about, like, I just overhear it uh, in uh, my day-to-day life about like, oh, we just got to kill Putin. We just got to kill these Russians or, oh, you know, they're cheering on deaf and war because one side is an aggressor and that makes it okay war is bad it should stop and i don't care how it stops it just should stop should china be the mediator likely does it look like they're sitting on their hands that's analysis i can't make but let's talk about all politics is local in fact so let's talk about local development and an urbanism with a story from strong towns which i pretty much liked uh, it's called zombie companies and a zombie economy And this is where liberals get really, really close to getting the point, but then say, this is just a problem. This is just an access. And um, I'll get to that uh, with my rhetoric when I go through it. But here is uh, it's about, you know, so maybe you've heard of this zombie companies or zombie properties. Uh, This is a zombie property usually refers to a house that's under has an underwater mortgage. It's just so far in debt that um, it's not. Uh, basically. It's not live. It doesn't have a balanced budget. That's usually what being a zombie something means, economically speaking. So there was a large, here's uh st- start of the text, uh, written by a Charles uh, Maron, May 26th of 2020. Again, I saved this two years ago, uh, expecting to do a kind of regular uh, stream where I talk of architecture and urban issues. So I have a lot of these stories saved. So there was a large strip mall built out along the highway corridor back in 2007. It was at the far edge of the city, a frontage row that had been run through a wetland to provide access. So there's the ecology side. An apparently justifiable encroachment on nature, given the prime location, at considerable cost. All city utilities had been extended. The public all in on this bed as well, an anchor restaurant, a famous Dave's, assured all that success was to come. Of course, the market took an abrupt shift in the years immediately following construction. Except for the restaurant, the strip mall would sit completely empty for a decade. I was told that if someone agreed to sign a five-year lease, they could get the first year free, or the first two years. The rumored numbers changed, while the vacancies didn't. Ultimately, Famous Dave's closed, and to my surprise, was replaced by a Boulder Tap House. Some tenants started to creep in. A number of businesses opened and closed, seemingly misjudging the value of highway frontage. They probably figured it out within the first 12 months before the lease payments kicked in. More than a dozen years later, the little mall is about 50% occupied at any given time. But I don't drive past it much anymore and can't report on the ebbs and flows. I was out there recently, however, and was surprised to see a new strip mall being built further up the highway. That is to say, I didn't expect to see it, but once I did, I was not surprised at all. I've actually grown used to the insanity. You see, I've accepted that I live in a world where things don't make sense and don't have to make sense, and so I've stopped worrying about it. A new strip mall next to a failed strip mall—what could be more natural? Hmm. So, uh, subtitle: catastrophic capital. But not capitalism, you know, it's just this. There's a type of capitalism that's, you know, it's corporate communism. No, <laughs> corporate capitalism. Or rather, he doesn't call it, he doesn't go that direction. Let's imagine, so now he gives the explanation of how such a thing occurs. Where one strip mall can be not completely occupied, failing as far as like, it has some tenants, but it's not fully occupied. Why would a new strip mall be built? You know, isn't isn't this supposed to be? Isn't the market supposed to be supply and demand? Obviously, there's not enough demand to supply more strip mall, more commercial space, more parking. It's unneeded. Are 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 these market actors rational? Why are they insane? Well, actually, according to the logic of the market and personal or uh, profitable interest, they actually are acting rather rationally. He uh he goes into how. Let's imagine there are three entrepreneurs. You know, actually, for ideological reasons, uh, I decided I'm going to replace the word entrepreneur with capitalist because that is who we're actually talking about. An entrepreneur is some petite bourgeois, you know, small, plucky go-gether who just happens to take out a big loan and thus has capital. But let's say anyone who's acting with capital is, in fact, a capitalist. They control capital. Um, they're, they're acting as a capitalist. Now, politically speaking, that means... You want these people to be in charge of not only the economy, but the government. That is capitalism. But let's just say we're talking about the economy. People who have capital, making decisions, not communities, not indigenous people, people who have capital or people who have borrowed capital. So here we go. Three capitalists seeking to invest for they're seeking an investment for their business and one investor in town with that kind of money. Capitalist A has a great business plan, loads of experience, and has been running the business profitably for a number of years. Capitalist B seems like a good person, has a great idea, but is short on experience and has only done a small model of the business. Capitalist C has a crazy dream, or rather a far-fetched one. Talk's a good game, but it's clear that they have little clue what they're doing. If the cap, if the investor can only partner with one of these three, it would surprise no one that they pick A. The two will work out a deal that will balance the aggressiveness, desperation, and risk of each party and translate that into an ownership stake and a projected rate of return. In that scenario, B and C are going to be left to struggle without additional capital. Let's now assume that there are two investors, not one, and they... Are both equally disposed. Both will want to work with A. And that business owner is likely to now get better terms than if they were only one investor. Whatever investor loses that courtship now has to choose between B and C. Maybe B gets a shot now, hopefully, with a partner that can provide some guidance along with patience. Now, instead of two investors, let's assume that there is five or ten. And all of these investors have made promises to their backers that they must keep and rates of return that they are expected to meet, because even investors are just middlemen for the actual idle capitalists. So maybe entrepreneur is the correct term to use here. The real capitalists are the ones that are actually acting through the investors, because it's not like, well, sometimes they are the same person or entity, but let's not get stuck in the weeds. Entrepreneur A is now getting great terms. So good, in fact, that it's likely that whoever wound up up making that investment did so with an overinflated sense of future returns. You know, oh, they're going to succeed no matter what. It's a sure thing. The best investment has now become a bad investment, or at least a risky one. So B is now also getting an amazing deal with unbelievable terms as investors fight each other for over the remaining opportunities. So it's like there's a supply and demand for, like, if there's not enough opportunities to invest in, then investors have to, you know, there's, a, there's an oversupply of investment capital and a lack of demand for opportunities. That's actually what our system is going through right now. Uh, that's the big, you know, reveal, I guess. But C now goes from being completely on the outs to being easily funded with yield-starved investors fighting each other to make that investment. In fact, despite the enormous risk, C can get as much capital as they need at rates that are ridiculously low. So C goes and builds another strip mall right next to the one that has been sitting mostly empty since 2007. At least, I'm not sure if this is actually academically backed, but this is one interpretation of how these things go by this writer. Uh, but it certainly does have some explanatory power. Let's just, you know, replace a strip second strip mall because the first one is at least doing half okay. <laughs> it has half of its tenants, uh, or something, assuming that. But um, you know, let's say you know they're starved for opportunities, so they'll go for anything. They'll go for NFTs. They'll go for you know just whatever good pitch is out there, because all of the opportunities that do guarantee a return like, say, plastic or, well, actually, that's that's the real kicker. Nothing has a good rate of return anymore. And this is all kind of explained and predicted by Marx, just pointing that out there, the, this process of over, like, the the trillions and trillions that are just sitting around in the bank accounts of our ruling class, looking for things to invest in because that's what the logic of the market should, you know, they should have something to invest in, right? Are they going to invest in schools? Are they going to invest in, you know, the poor or, you know, working people like to create jobs? No, there's nothing to create jobs to do because no job that will be created will create enough profit or any profit. As many, many, many corporations, things like, say, Netflix, Tesla, and all these other great companies they're all operating in debt whole economy is operating in debt because there's just no way to make enough profit to pay back the money that was created isn't it great so anyway but we're just talking about local urbanism here so zombie companies publicly traded companies report their earnings each quarter those reports include their operating income as well as the amount they paid on interest A zombie company is a business that does not earn enough to pay the interest on their debt. Not only do they require more debt to pay off their existing debt when it comes due, but then they need to take on additional debt just to cover the interest. There are legitimate reasons why this might happen for one or two quarters. Some unexpected drop in earnings, let's say because a pandemic happens or some disaster. But this is not a situation that should persist for any length of time. The market should kill off such business. After all, who would loan money to a business that had little to no chance of making enough money to pay them back? Well, your crazy uncle would. I don't know what that kind of line refers to, but I think uh, Wall Street would. Last year, way before any kind of pandemic discussion, there was concern in some financial circles that the growing number of zombie companies, about such growing number, more than a decade of near zero interest rates meant that every investor, every pension fund, Every hedge fund, every insolvent baby boomer with hopes of retiring was fighting to invest in anything that could potentially pay a return. After the good investments were all driven recklessly bad, what was left was junk debt and a lot of zombie companies. Junk debt like student loans or medical debt. kind of things that, oh, the Democrats can never just wave away because... That's what a lot of people still have that invested in that. (laughs) What about their retirement? In March of 2019, CNN reported that 13% of public companies in the world's advanced economies were zombies. An interesting Twitter thread at the beginning of the year listed a score of them and then dove into the financials of some. These are truly wretched companies, yet they don't go away. To those of you who think that Apple or Google are the smartest companies in the world... Consider that they are sitting on tens of billions of dollars in cash, earning essentially nothing. Same with Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. There are so few decent investments that these titans of capital choose to earn nothing on billions rather than put the money to work, a.k.a. also putting people to work, even in the case of Apple and Google in their own companies. Like they're not self-investing. They're not putting that, their earnings back into the company. Because why would they? Why Why do they have to? It's actually riskier to do that. Are you following your broker's advice in buying S&P 500 index funds? Congratulations. You're purchasing a whole bunch of zombie companies, driving up their stock price, allowing them to linger on longer. And this was before the pandemic. This was before huge hits to earnings, before Congress started borrowing Trillions more to bail them out before the Federal Reserve started printing trillions of dollars, buying everything on sale in a desperate attempt to keep inflated the multiple financial bubbles that we now consider normal. They should have just been buying the companies themselves. But I guess that's technically what they've been doing, buying the stocks. But again, it's, it's buying them to be capitalists, not, well, the other thing. To turn this money towards social ends, or for social good. Get used to crazy, but not too much. Even though it makes no sense, we're going to get another strip mall out on the edge of town. We're all going to get a lot of crazy stuff in the coming months and years. I'm taking the time to explain all of this today. Crazy stuff like NFTs or all kinds of crazy things that money is just going to get pumped into because, oh, it might be something that makes money someday, we run the risk of normalizing this kind of condition, of coming to believe that this is how things actually work. Don't let that happen. Oh, but, but good sir, these, this is how things work. This is how things work. Come on. I think it's profoundly naive. Okay, but this is how things are going, working right now. I'm not happy with it, and I don't support anyone who is putting forth these policies, which, if you want to get political, means both major parties since this is one of the few consensus policies we have. I've accepted that this is the insane way things are going to work for a while, and I can't do anything about it, but I'm not going to think this is normal. Strong towns need local entrepreneurs, so we have to carve out space for them. We must have small businesses, so we have to work alongside them. They are all being crowded out in an unfair game. The easy returns go to their zombie competitors while the local businesses struggle every day for survival. Our economic policies make our cities weaker. They make our country weaker. And that's the nationalist framing, by the way. So it's all about how weak or strong our country is. What about the people? What about communities? I don't care about country. I care about people. And ironically, they make the economy we are pretending to save even weaker. The only way we fix this is from the bottom up. We can start that right now by working to build strong towns. Now, this this guy's wrong in that small business owners, but also known as petite bourgeois, are not the bottom. The bottom is underclass, like the unemployed and the homeless, which includes people who are employed. So above them are workers. Like, I'm just going to call them minimum wage workers, quote unquote, unskilled workers. Above that moderately skilled, then professional skilled, and then actual, you know, and so on. Small business owners are not the bottom, all right? They're supposed to be, they're the middle class that's referred to when, when Democrats and even Bernie Sanders talk of saving the middle class. They talk of business owners because they're the, they're the engines, right? And the business owner, everyone could be a business owner, right? Really? Can everyone just be a business owner, be their own business owner? No, because every business also needs workers. Now, if we have a co-op economy and, and so on, then everyone is both a worker and an owner of these, biz- of enterprises, not just businesses, enterprises. So, okay. Not very, not, this is not a stump speech. <laughs> Moving on. Next is taking a look at urbanism and the problems of our, you know, urbanism from a climate angle. Um, looking at particularly land use, and again, uh, this is from Brookings, and again, with a very milquetoast, naive, um, reformist response, which I, since, even as a teenager, if I read such articles, considered incredibly unsatisfying. So this one's from Brookings called, It's a Report, We Can't Beat the Climate Crisis Without Rethinking Land Use, by an Adi Tomer. Uh, from uh, May of 2021 last year. I think they have a few writers on this. Um, so there's Addie, Joseph, Jenny, and Caroline George. So Caroline George's Caroline's last name. So it starts with I'm going to skip around or at least try to summarize some bits here. So it goes it starts with you know Biden being Biden. I guess I'll read it out. After declaring the climate, climate crisis to be a top priority of his administration, Another lie. President uh, Joe Biden recently solidified his greenhouse gas reduction targets as part of a major global summit, uh, referring to uh, Glasgow. But again, it's all talk. The national goal is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. I guess that's better than saying carbon emissions because that's just one type. Uh, But reducing them by half of the amount emitted in 2005 by 2030. We have an even bigger goal of net zero by 2050, which is still too late. We need to actually go to zero by 2030. So judging by how big the economy is, it's, it's actually too late. Adopt a posture on that, uh, I suppose. I'm going to press forward anyway. The targets are necessary and ambitious. Wrong. Ambitious is the Green Party's goal, uh, or rather the target of zero by 2030. Let's say it's 2040, but really, it's, it's, this is why scientists are changing, uh, chaining themselves to doors because uh, climatology, uh, the, the whole field of climatology is like, no, it needs to be zero by 2030 because really, we just cannot be make, putting more into the atmosphere. It's just already too much, already way too much. We shouldn't have gone over 350 parts per million. We're, we're at 400, 450. It's, it's not, it's terrible. <laughs> they also require a set of systems level change. But this is what's really frustrating in that even the thing that's not good enough, you have these guys writing, like, well, this is very ambitious. This is like, this is, whoa, like, this is like, this would be like really great if we, we could do this. The thing that's being proposed by Democrats. It's like someone telling you that when you're bleeding out, and um, no, not bleeding out. Use the metaphor of the knife, you know, whether you, how much you're bleeding or not. There's a knife in there, and saying, and it's like, okay, I'm going to pull the knife out one inch, and there's an observer going like, wow, that's some great medicine work right there. Pulling that knife out, he pulled that, it's half out. <laughs> Simply put, the U.S. can't reach this reduction target if our urban areas continue to grow as they have in the past. After decades of sprawl, the U.S. has the dubious honor of being the world leader in both building-related energy consumption and vehicle miles per travel in per capita. Making matters worse, lower energy development also pollutes, and that means suburbs, pollute water and require higher relative emissions during initial construction. That leaves the country with no choice. We must prioritize development in the kinds of neighborhoods that permanently reduce total driving and thus consume less energy overall. Such human-centered neighborhoods have the added benefit of helping us adapt to climate impacts, public health, yada, yada, just talking about denser neighborhoods, actual cities. But even, it does not just mean big cities and metro areas. You can still have a small town. But like in the olden days, things are just clustered around a half-mile circle and everything has two floors, that is higher density. All right, higher density doesn't just mean cities. And higher density does not mean taller. You can have five, five-story 5 buildings take up a certain amount of space, or you can have one 50-story building. But depending on how much floor area that the building takes up, or ground area, You can have the same density on a plot of land and have it at five floors or even three floors than something that would be ten floors or require elevators. So decarbonizing electricity is essential but insufficient. This is something I learned in school. I'm imparting this information to you now a whole decade later. Amongst various climate concerns, the U.S. is one of the world's largest greenhouse gas uh, emitters. Even with aggregate drops over 12% since 2005, to make even bigger cuts over the next decade, the Biden administration is betting, let's just say the American government, is betting on a two-step process, aggressively decarbonizing how we generate electricity and then switching as many activities as possible to clean electricity. This promise to adopt a clean electricity standard is a great approach for a few reasons. Okay, so I'm going to... I'm kind of ignoring these paragraphs because it's actually wrong as well. I mean, it's 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 a good the, the the argument is a good approach because it has the least impact on how people live. You know, changing your light bulbs, switching from gas vehicles to electric vehicles, you still have a happy motoring lifestyle just using electricity instead of gasoline. But this is the problem that this article is meant to be pointing out: that our drop in emissions has only been via electricity and nowhere else. Emissions haven't dropped in buildings, in uh, transportation, in industry, and in so and so on. And other types of emission sources. Because I mean, because of fracking, because of all kinds of other things. But basically we, you know, we can reduce you can reduce your electricity use, right? But a carbon footprint, or a greenhouse gas, or an ecological footprint, to put it more broadly, is not just how much electricity you use. It's all the metals and all the appliances, and and how often things break, and uh, and so on, and all the trash that's made, and also just, you, know, you know, and all the energy that's used to make things. So it talks of this, you know, decarbonizing, and it's it's weird. It switches, you know, it switches between greenhouse gas, and then you know. Uses the decarbonization language of just carbon CO2 emissions, but obviously there's a lot more because methane is stronger in the atmosphere. So let's see, you know, goes through all of the things that I've covered in previous um, greenwashing busting episodes. This is about car fighting car dependency basically. Clean electricity standards is an essential step for the country, but it doesn't address our land use issues. Car-dependent neighborhoods lock us into a baseline okay, baseline of harmful emissions while creating other impacts in the process. Every other kind. Vehicles present an eternal and unsolvable geometric challenge. They require significantly more space per person than any competing mode of transport. Duh. The comparison shows uh, looking at Kansas, Kansas, two Kansas City neighborhoods with a similar number of residents and jobs. One was built before mass adoption of the automobile, the other decades later. The comparison shows the enormous difference in space they take up and, of course, all other impacts. A denser two-story house neighborhood takes up 0.3 square miles. A suburban neighborhood, 1.4 square miles. Metropolitan America has spent decades shifting the vast majority of economic activity to t- car-dependent neighborhoods, leading to greater per-person land consumption and more driving. Between 1916 and 2010, U.S. urban land area grew at a rate of 1.7 times. But again, it's not just the land area, right? We've, we're a big country. We have a lot of land. It's the, it's the use of resources. It's the ecological footprint. Not just the individual carbon footprint but it shows the graph uh shows maps i i saw college uh, a decade and a half ago uh just showing that um that the average household car- uh, carbon footprint is highest in suburbs and lowest in uh dense urban areas and those well basically only there actually and wilderness areas Add it all up in Metro America, where over 86% of people live, is a wash and missed opportunities. Biking and walking produce nearly zero emissions, but we built neighborhoods that either make distances too long or travel paths too unsafe. Transit can be more energy efficient for long distance trips, but the geometry of car dependent neighborhoods limits demand for buses and trains. We know gentle density offers sizable housing units, but still promoting energy efficient buildings. I have to look up what gentle density refers to. I guess it just means you know two-story houses and not one-story houses, or um, or houses that are just you know, ten feet apart instead of uh, thirty feet apart. You know, the more detached the house, and the more uh, the further apart everything is, the more uh, car driving you have to do. So, here's what they propose. Utterly unsatisfying, but let's go through it. To build resilient regions, we need better functioning markets. And policy coordination, oh, better markets. We didn't better markets, you know, like those crazy, insane markets we just talked about. We need better markets, functioning markets, because they're not they're just not functioning. You know, Like if they function properly, uh, you know, government got out of the way, maybe. <laughs> so there are thousands of real estate developers, almost 40,000 local governments and over 100 million households and all have some level of individual control over where we develop land and what we build on it. Oh, yes, let's make this an individual problem. That's what it sounds like anyway. The country needs a new approach to land development. That's what it's saying. it's saying. It's been overly individualistic, right? So we need two areas of action. So here's our market reform. Use market principles to send climate-sensitive price signals. Real estate developers, lenders, and households will make more resilient investment decisions if they understand the climate-related costs of Of their decisions and bear some brunt of the financial impact for example charging higher mortgage interest rates or or increasing insurance premiums could could steal development away from sensitive areas it also works in reverse as federal and state incentives could encourage more resilient development patterns such as conserving land and incorporating greener designs i don't want greener okay i don't want these qualified improvements I want things to be better. Don't we want things to be better? Oh, but we have to use markets. We have to send out price signals. We have to regulate. We just have to basically add costs to capitalism. But do you not understand? Like It's so incredibly naive. But ideology compels that you'd not uh, learn from any lessons of market reform policy carbon markets and this kind of market and oh we'll we'll have a green capitalism no i covered all this in previous green watching episodes for the most part so the other side is um use statutory authorities to scale policy adoption the federal government doesn't directly control land use though you know maybe it should but big centralization question that you know general brainwashed american cannot be fathom you know they push and push about like people reactionary is all about like education right now uh but it's it's all further sexual perversities or projections anyway again they're just talking about like setting some rules changes we just need to change some rules so it doesn't directly control land use, but has several policy levers to influence it, including flooding and disaster insurance, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac's lending rules. Oh, yeah, because those are so useful in the aughts. The location and quality of transportation investments and environmental permitting laws. Federal rules, whether done through a carrot or stick approach, can push states, fragmented metro areas, and real estate developers and households I don't know how they're like, how is a household supposed to like, that's like say a suburban household. Like, I mean, they're just referring to like a household choice of moving to a metro, like a denser area, but you need more denser housing first before people can choose to live in denser housing. And so it's like, you just need to focus on developers, the people building housing. But if you didn't learn something from the last story, it's that, They're going to do, it's all working as intended. They're doing what works, and what works for them is what makes money or gets the best return on investment. It's not doing the right thing. That only makes sense if you think making the most money is the right thing. This is assumed because once you have a lot of money, you can do a lot of stuff with it. You can do a lot of good stuff, but as mentioned... As the current market is operating, not because of any government policy, government policy is the capitalist policy, which is we've collected the money and we're sitting on it. We're not doing anything with it. Bezos ain't doing anything with it. no he is sorry he's going to the moon. that's what they're doing with it because <laughs> it's a, on the on the possibility. That rich people going to space, flying rich people to space, is a profitable investment. Overcoming the climate crisis requires addressing land use. Statements of intent are important signals and don't cost politicians much. It's imperative that our national leaders start naming land use challenges when they discuss our climate future. I agree with that. But we can't afford to stop there. America needs federal leadership to test ideas and scale solutions. Land use may be local, but our climate future is shared. I agree with that sentiment. I think we need to go further, or at least we need to be a little more creative and think outside the market logic box or the defeatism that, like, well, we can't change the marketplace. We can't change the system, the game. can't change the game. This is what's called, I'll go into this in a, Another episode from now, uh, you know, game acceptance. And I'm not advocating for the opposite, which is game denial, which is sort of what the other one, uh, the first one said. Like, look, it's crazy, but I'm just going to pretend that it's not right because <laughs> uh, I have no idea what to do about this. <laughs> we tried nothing, and we're all out of ideas. Might sound familiar. Okay, I will wrap up the hour. From MarketWatch, I don't know how, how this got published on MarketWatch, but it's an opinion uh, pointing out that, uh, you know, the marketplace is building quite a lot of housing. Problem is no one, can, uh, no one but uh, certain classes of people can afford it. So it's an opinion piece. Why building more homes can't solve the housing affordability problem for the millions who need it most, which is that they don't have enough income. Because incomes for a majority of Americans have been stagnant since uh, 1980, even before 2020, and, and any you know gains in wages is just basically meeting inflation at this point. Even before 2020, the U.S. faced an acute housing affordability crisis. Don't need to go through this, right? We have affordability crisis. Uh, no one can afford anything. Rent is too damn high. In short. Uh, As experts on housing policy, we agree that increasing the supply of homes is necessary in areas with rapidly rising housing costs. But this won't by itself make a significant dent in the country's affordability problem, especially for those with the most severe need. Because much of the country, there is no actual shortage of rentals. The problem is that millions of people lack the income to afford what's on the market. And this is where the crisis hits hardest. Nationally, about 45% of all renter households spend more than a third of their pre-tax income on rent, the widely recognized threshold of affordability. So that's what it means for something to be affordable or not. Are you spending 30% of your income on housing? (laughs) That's what it means. About half of these renters, about 10 million in total, spend, so um, half of quarter of renters spend up to a half of their income on housing which basically impairs their need to meet any other basic needs and thus puts them at risk of becoming homeless because if you can't afford good food or health care or entertainment you go crazy and once you're crazy you lose your job and then you lose and then thus you can't pay for the housing that's poverty spiral in practice for a household earning twenty grand, five hundred dollars per month is the highest affordable rent, assuming the affordability standard of spending no more than thirty percent of your income. In contrast, the median rent in the US was roughly a thousand dollars or a thousand and a hundred dollars. A level that's affordable to households earning no less than forty three thousand eight hundred dollars. That's about the median income in Albany, actually. But median means half of the people make less than that. So the, in homes that uh, rent for 500 or less are exceedingly scarce, fewer than 10% of all occupied and vacant housing units rent for that price. 31% are occupied by households earning more than twenty grand, pushing low-income renters in the housing they can't afford. There's just not enough of that kind of housing. And I'm told by liberal new urbanists that... You get low-income housing by building housing and waiting. like once it's like once a new house right, which costs 300,000 is old enough, right, then uh, it will be worth less and then and then the rent will be lower in theory. For example, in Cleveland with a median rent of 725 dollars which is actually pretty low. 27% of all renters spend more than half of their income on rent. This is likely because salaries or wages are lower there. So in San Fran, the median rent is close to $2,000. 18% of renters spend at least half their income on rent. And it's even worse for the poorest residents. In both cities, more than half of all extremely low-income renters spend at least 50% of their income on rent. Now, I did hear a little anecdote from a coworker. About the, on the lack of housing, this just exists sign. There's like there is a housing shortage, but it depends on where you're looking and what kind of area we're talking about. Like, talking, you know, in his case, it's a rural area, uh, the city of Bennington in Vermont, uh, which is a very small city, but it has a sizable college, uh, which his spouse is going to work there, and you know they're having a house there, but it's a little small. Maybe it's not small. Maybe it isn't really that small, but I'm not judging his standards. Uh, but he was saying, oh, it was really hard to find a place in that area for in the southern Vermont. So I guess there's a, maybe there's a housing shortage in southern Vermont, at least for the kind of income that this um, family has of my coworker, He's a recent coworker. worker He moved up here from uh, North Carolina. And, uh, and it was, the conversation uh, exists because, like, he's commuting about 40 minutes in, uh, which is actually not so long. You know, there are people who commute into my city of Albany over an hour. Uh, why? Because they like living in the middle of nowhere. So if, like, if your housing needs and the the demand is like, oh, I want to live in Nowheresville or I just want to live in Exurbia, not, su- not even suburbia, too crowded in suburbia, too much traffic got to drive all the way out three counties <laughs> that's how big a metro area really is or i want i want to live outside the metro area right but, but because of suburban sprawl that just keeps getting bigger and you have to keep go, going further and further away where there's less and less where the only housing are, are old farmhouses there aren't really any apartment buildings there you know and if there is going to be housing built it's going to be some subdivision that's suburban and uh, it's wasteful terrible to the environment etc cetera. Et cetera. So uh, this um, this is Market Watch. So uh, he proposes uh, the solution is, is simply to subsidize people's rent. Expand Section 8. Covering the difference between what these renters can afford the actual cost of housing, then is the only solution for nearly 9 million low-income households that pay at least half their income on rent. The U.S. already has a program designed to help these people. It's called the Housing Choice Voucher, also known as Section 8, where recipients pay 30% of their income on rent that basic affordability threshold, and the program covers the balance. While some landlords have refused to accept such tenants using vouchers, you know, they're poor, they're dirty, or they're uh, they're crying, they're more criminal or something like that. Or they just have bad, uh, they don't have bourgeois values, you know, they're not as uh, respectful of the property, they damage things, et cetera, et cetera. Landlords always be complaining about tenants because they don't have the same value set. Well, because if you've always been poor, Yeah, a little crazy. Maybe some stability would help. Not having to move around or pay half your income on rent. Whatever it takes. But overall, the program has made a meaningful uh, difference. The $26 billion program currently serves about 2.5 million households. But that's one in four of all eligible ones. The current version of Democrat social spending bill would, would gradually expand the program by about 300000 over five years, adding another $24 billion to the program. I don't know how that works out, but maybe because it's helping people in more expensive metro areas. While this would be the single largest increase in the program's nearly 50-year history, it would still leave millions of low-income renters unable to afford a home. And that's not a problem more supply can solve. Got to go plus ultra about this a reminder that word of mouth is the best thing you can do to grow a show and the number of like-minded comrades you can leave a review on all the podcast platforms this show is on share the three lefts via your chosen social media platform it's mostly just on uh facebook um and twitter but i'm pretty much i think i'm going to delete my twitter i don't use it uh and i want to get off twitter um i don't it's just pointless to me um not to mention you know the whole um must trying to buy it out, but again, again, one one tech billionaire is as evil as another. I use Facebook, so what hypocrisy, what hypocrisy have I Rot on myself? Um, but anyway, uh, if you want to support the show materially, you can go to my Patreon page. It's a three-left show, and it's also um, – there's another one. I have it on the other sheet. But anyway, moving on, on the second half of the show, I will actually discuss uh, meaningful solutions – or responses to the issues I've raised. Um, It is not hopeless. Uh, It just takes a lot of work and a lack of a defeatist attitude. And then we can move forward. If your rent has doubled
0: There are different ways to cope with the situation And make it through your days There are therapeutic methods Such as playing darts with a picture of your landlord's private body parts You can get a roommate or two or three or four Build a loft and squeeze more beds onto every floor You can scratch up each Mercedes that you find on your street Say piss off yuppie scum to each yuppie scum you meet But do not kill your landlord It will not end well You'll be living rent free inside a prison cell You can pay a visit very early in the morn To where your landlord lives, but don't forget the bullhorn You can form a samba band march up and down his road You can play with firecrackers as you watch them explode You can sing a song about 1848 When renters burn the mansions down and over through the state You can talk about your landlord, how much you'd like to see him dead Just make sure it remains only something that you said Yes, do not kill your landlord, it will not end well You'll be living rent-free inside a prison cell We'll Say hi to your neighbors, organize a meeting, form a tenant's union so it won't be something fleeting. Have some demonstrations, make plans for a rent strike, create a list of demands, perhaps something like no more rent increases, fix the things that break, get rid of all that mold in the walls, for goodness sake, no more no-cause evictions, no more acting like an ass, no more acting like a member of a feudal ruling class, yes, do not kill your landlord, it will not end well, you'll be living rent-free inside a prison cell
1: welcome back or rather you're listening to the three left show i'm your host dan platt talking housing issues and basically socialist and anarchist solutions to the um, general problem of housing, uh, rent is too damn high type of, well, big systemic issues. Is a systemic injustice, really, is the point. And it concerns me how supply-side economics is not really declining in the minds of liberals and progressives. Uh, I see it come up kind of again and again. Whether it's well, it's particularly it relates to this issue that I see this like, oh what we just need to build more housing. It doesn't matter what the opening uh rent is, as long as there's more, then the uh you know the benefits of all of this new market rate housing trickles down. Or we just have enough nonprofits with government subsidies building quote unquote affordable units. Or Worse, we use market mechanisms. We just add a little bit of zoning rule change where, you know, with every, we use inclusionary zoning. You can build whatever you want as long as 5 to 10%, but even so, like even 5% is considered like 10% or too much. How about 5% negotiated down in our city? Inclusionally, uh, at least 5% of your units must be affordable. Um, how is that supposed to create enough housing stock for Working class people. It doesn't. And it's a supply side economics. And yet, these people still like, oh, these Republicans, they're, the, you know, Reagan, and like, oh, we can't just tax, do tax cuts for the rich. They say they're going to like, oh, give us more money so we can spend it invest it and grow the economy or develop the economy or just keep the economy moving in a general positive direction. But of course, that just means. Growing greenhouse gas emissions and all the other crap, but let's not let's not dwell on on um a, a degrowth rhetoric. Just talking about trying to house people, and then they sit on it. They don't do anything with that money. It's the same thing with market rate of housing. They build it, and it's either getting sit on, or yes, it is being rented to uh vac- you know, vacancies are filled by professionals. There's lots of demand by professional class people moving to metro areas moving away from suburbs because they care about their individual carbon footprint and all that. But what about the regional carbon footprint? You know, market mechanisms ain't going to de-suburbanize you know, our metro areas. I mean, I wanted to point out that I agree with the whole idea, the general idea of policy coordination on a regional level. You know, the planning needs to be done there. We need to empower, like we have right now, a, regional planning committee but it's just a committee that puts out reports and maybe does some come some proposals for when the governor of new york i'm referring to you know is like oh, i've got some money to give out and the that entity puts out the proposals you know that that's that was the case with uh, when we had our actual hunger games a coma was doing where it's like hey uh you throw out your proposals and I'll judge them and see you know which ones are the best and I'll give you the money that's how we do economic development in uh in New York but it's not just a coma problem this is that that was i mean there was there wasn't too much uh outrage at uh, at how things are done there's just outrage when it's quote unquote corrupt because the bidding was uh you know given to a campaign donor but it's not seen apparently as an injustice or corrupt Two, by doing by doing things in um, by using market reforms and going, mo- go, we got to go for the market. We got to need we got to do public private partnerships, also known as honest graft, or at least it's what I call it. OK, moving on. Talking about positive developments slash open opportunities. For left-wing solutions to our what ails us, first let's go for the more direct municipalities, government agencies, people who can actually take out bonds and only need to pay them back. It's not about getting a return on investment uh, because it's just seen as a public good. It is there. It is an investment in the community. From the Sacramento Bee, a, a California school district is using bonds to build an affordable housing complex for staff, so they don't have to, you know, bribe or regulate market actors into building affordable housing or 10% of their units, just do it yourself. Cripe's sake. California School District says it's the first in the nation to use bonds to build affordable housing for its employees. The Jefferson Union High School District broke ground Wednesday on the new housing units, the district said. The four-story development will have 120 units, offering below-market rent to eligible faculty and staff. First residents may move in as early as fall 2021. Did I mention the stories from 2020? <laughs> I did not. So maybe it's already built. Maybe it's finished. We'll have to check in. Providing affordable housing for school staff using bonds to fund it is a new concept, reports K-R-O-N. The district has been affected by a 20% staff turnover rate for years, School District Teachers Union President Monica Casey told K-G-O. Officials hope the additional perk of housing will help. Actually providing your workers with actual physical and material benefits? We have a high turnover rate and are hoping what will happen with this project is that we can recruit more teachers and we can keep the teachers we have now. This is the city's mayor, Glenn Sylvester. All non-management staff can apply to live within the units. School District said the housing will be offered below market rate. And of course, that's very vague, but whatever. I'll take it. Today is a day of hope for all of our students. Jefferson Union High School District Superintendent Terry Delonia. He weighs in with his statement. For three years that I've been here, we've been struggling to find teachers and other staff to fill positions. Well, because the salaries are kind of low and it's a high-stress job. It's the least you can do. But, I mean, they're the first to do it, but it's a good example, isn't it? To fill positions across the school district you know, because the students deserve better. Well, the workers deserve better, too. Everyone deserves better. Anyway, I'm going to revisit a story that I um, went over. I don't, I don't know when it was, but some time ago, maybe a year. I covered a model for a real estate co-op called a Perk. It was just a basic article from the nonprofit or the collective that was doing the work of developing this model, kind of thinking about combining the democracy, the social good of a co-op with uh, the f- urban and how you know and the flexibility of a real estate enterprise. Because frankly, we do have lots of, especially in New York City, lots of housing co-ops. You have an entire uh, neighborhood called Co-op City, which is just large urban tenements, not just tenements, but, you know, big housing developments that are a co-op. And they have a board, you know, elected uh, tenants are elected to it. It's a lot of thankless work. Yada, yada could always be a little more horizontal about things. You know, they've, it's, it's been around for a while. It's a very simple social democratic kind of process of keep rent stable. You make the building a co-op and um and so on and it's very simple that way lots of them but a building co-op it's just a single building right how can we have a city that has social or community ownership i think we need co-op real estate co-ops and i did cover one such uh real estate co-op but this one has the uh added suffix of a permanent real estate co-op or perk and now um, via shareable in their housing section, is a follow-up on the first perk uh that was being developed in Oakland. So meet the co-op activists who are challenging Oakland's real estate game. They're game changers, right? They're not denying that real estate is part of the game. And but they're not accepting that it has to be done, you know, with a LLC or a nonprofit because you know when a nonprofit collects property they have to be doing it for this explicit social good purpose or or nonprofit purposes that's really really difficult it's really really difficult for some reason and there's also the uh strategy of the land trust but that is that is it's been around for decades and it seems to have hit a wall or a There's a barrier to it taking off or growing further because at the end of the day, a land trust is still just a big landlord and there's not too much democracy because a land trust is just what I mean, a nonprofit that collected a bunch of property and uh, people buy the house, but they own the land and this keeps the housing price down. So instead of costing two hundred thousand, it costs twelve hundred twenty thousand. So anyway, the Seventh Street Corridor in Oakland, California, was once a two-mile strip known as the Harlem of the West, home to a myriad of businesses, dry cleaners, cobblers, tax accountants, cafes, and two hundred fifty thousand Black residents—quarter million. Decades of redlining, structural environmental racism, widespread resource extraction, Silicon Valley-fueled economic booms have reduced it to 11 blocks of liquor stores, trash, and empty defunct buildings, according to Anoni. Session. Session is a third-generation Oaklander, is the director and is also the director of the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Co-op, an organization incorporated in 2017 that uses co-op organizing to directly confront the skyrocketing home and rental prices, neighborhood displacements, and entrenched income inequality that disproportionately affects Black and Brown communities across the East Bay. Black women lead, so to speak. As the population diversity of Oakland in Oakland was exploding, she said, "What was contracting was the Black and Brown presence in these new economic, and social, spatial configurations." Kind of an economic, academic jargon language. There, Black and Brown folk are not being housed. They weren't being employed. There was no real political or legal holding container for them to accumulate. Wealth and assets. And uh, the usual response is like, you got to build wealth and assets, uh, start a business and hustle, 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 hustle. Be an entrepreneur. But for some reason, black entrepreneurs are the last to get big funding. They're like entrepreneur H in that lineup from before of A, B, and C. Problems and solutions. The East Bay Permanent Real Estate Co-op is a multi-stakeholder co-op with four types of members. So this is what makes, you know, most co-ops more flexible in having different types of owners. They have staff owners, staff collective owners, they have resident owners who live in the properties purchased by the co-op, and community owners who oversee projects and ensure accountability, guidance and transparency. And then there's the larger group of investor owners who buy one or more thousand dollar shares with a projected 1.5% return on investment return after five years. This is very low because it's like you have a thousand dollars, a return of one and a half percent is, if you knew the math, $15, (laughs) but you're not doing it for profit. Resident owners also make lease payments, and community members pay dues of $10 annually, monthly, or weekly. So the community members pay dues in the same way that you would to a union. So it's an actual, like, like a housing union. And, um, and I assume community members, you know, it ensures that you pay $10 annually, monthly, or weekly for a vote in how things work. So it's democratic. The co-op's more than 400 investor owners seed a significant portion of the group's projects. Mission-based lenders, foundations, and philanthropists also donate. So Session refers to money received from the group's investors as justice dollars and acknowledges that the 1.5% return on investment is no match for the 7% annual return of a traditional one. But a big return is not the point. Our investors support transformation and community. They support helping people who have been traditionally been barred from acquiring wealth and assets through land and property ownership. They support helping black and brown people decide their own future. This can apply to anyone. Getting the 7th Street Quarter back in orbit. The cooperative was incorporated in 2017 after advocacy and action by local social justice groups. They're SJWs. Four years later, the co-op has closed on the Esther's Orbit Room Cultural Revival Project. It's third land and property acquisition and a major growth opportunity. So in the first three years, they've acquired three properties. Not very impressive, but also not a bad start. Centered on a shuttered blues and jazz club. Located, so derelict, blight, you know, so on. Uh, Nothing like empty commercial buildings, right? So it's on um, 7th Street near Oakland West Bay Rapid Transit. The co-op's goal is to transform the space into a vibrant cultural center as well as living space. Esters began as a popular, and it gives the history of Esther's not so important. Today, the real estate co-op's community, investor, and staff owners hope that their project will help restore the district's fatality, cessity, and cultural glory. Esther's is a multi-use, two-level building with 5,000 square feet on each floor. As a revitalization project, it offers many possibilities for cooperative ventures. And, you know, there's a lot of of different stuff you can do. The upper level, Session said, will house approximately eight artist resident owners. Between three to five commercial spaces may be created on the ground level. Now, this sort of reminds me of an enterprise um, called The Barn in Albany, which is uh, also artist resident housing and it's definitely like it's it's, it's a solid nonprofit. okay uh, it's not cooperative the artist residents kind of enter an agreement they produce art and they do various projects as part of basically paying a lower rent uh in this in this building which is a rehab space which includes an event space it's not a very good event space uh it doesn't have a lot of side Nook areas it's just kind of a square room with it happens as a stage uh, but it's ringed by the bedrooms so it's like kind of like hmm this could be planned better, but that's the space they had and they were wasn't built from scratch and they were outreaching for this project and fundraising for years and years and years. I was never like for, tabling for it and uh, I was never. I was very skeptical, like, is this really happening? They've been doing this for, like, five years. And then it it did happen. They were working towards it. And uh, and then I did actually talk with, just as I was starting the run for mayor, I was talking with, but I was meeting with some community stakeholders for something. Session also envisions a home for Oakland's historically black farmer's market and a space for up to 10 healing arts practitioners. So it's a lot of different spaces in this building, um, especially if you divvy it up. And you can do all sorts of things. You can have a health clinic, a free health clinic, or a community health clinic. You know, there's so many things when you actually own a building with uh, different kinds of rooms in it. There's a cafe potential in the middle that may have a wait staff and collaborative powers. There's a kitchen that could be for one or for multiple operators to use as different times of day. So they're thinking of like, okay, there's a kitchen, so obviously you could have a cafe and have it be part of an event space but it doesn't have to be a kitchen just for that it could also be kind of kitchen that during the day gets used by uh, as a food hub kind of kitchen community kitchen session said the project will prioritize help building community and so you know do all the things community spaces uh, past successes and the plans for the future our goal is to take as, on as many ownership situations as possible. We shoot for three acquisitions a year so we can support as many groups in attaining space and permanence in Oakland and the East Bay as possible given the conditions of the real estate market. This includes, she said, reviving multiple corridors using the Esther's Orbit Room project as a model. We want to use the, this capital to revive districts and revive cultural frameworks and revive connections in those communities neighborhoods. The East Bay perk has so far two other properties, a four-unit apartment building and its residents purchased and converted another, well, sorry, and converted under a collective ownership arrangement in 201 and a Berkeley-based four-bedroom single-family home with a detached dance studio, which was donated. So they didn't actually, well, they acquired it, but it was donated. Interesting. Hmm, in Berkeley. I mean, still in the Bay Area, right? But it's... I guess it's technically the East Bay as well. So maybe they they changed their name to be more accurate, but uh, they're in different cities. The good news, according to Session, is that unlike people who rent, resident owners get to pay down their cost of the project, so their lease payments lower over time. Resident owners also have decision-making powers over the property, which is co-managed by Session's organization. Together they decide on acquisitions, repairs, improvements, maintenance, and emergencies. Resident owners can never be evicted, and the real estate co-op consistently looks for ways to boost their share in economic power and equity. Still, as with anything in life, the co-op is not immune to certain challenges. There is a cost for being a market actor, Sessions said. To access the capital that allows us to remain competitive means finding capital that is 60% cheaper than what the commercial developers' sources are. These justice dollars are not as plentiful as venture capital ones. Yet the successes of our organization are real and are helping rebuild small local economies. While well, black and brown communities are included in all processes from the ground up. So this is what I would consider to be ground up, bottom up economic development, any other type, whether it be, well, we've got to help these small businesses, doesn't actually count to me. Although this does actually count also as a small business. There you go. Maybe I'm, uh, Maybe I'm just double talking myself but the difference is in the democracy, okay? It's not just one person or a small group. It's there's you got rent to own renters. And, and so that's that's the other kind of uh, big policy that I would like to investigate how it could be if if I were to say cave, I'm like okay, we'll we'll have a market mechanism reform, okay? We'll use the market. Like lower taxes for any landlord that has rent-to-own contracts as a as a first offer. Now, any tenant or that like your first lease is the offer of a rent-to-own contract. And if you don't do offer any, then you obviously don't get your tax break. But if you, you get a tax break, lower 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 taxes if you ensure that your tenants, low income or otherwise, can eventually be part owners of the property or the actual owners. But obviously, if we're talking about individual units in, say, a row house, apartment building, townhouse, then it needs to be some kind of collective arrangement then, right? You are owner of the flat, or you have equity in the building, but you now, it is yours. You know, just like how, obviously, in Manhattan or any place else, you can own an apartment. <laughs> the building can be owned by a larger entity, and you can still own the apartment. So, like, the building is owned, but you own the apartment. You're never to be, be evicted. But you're responsible for the apartment and so on and so on. But um, how would that work out? Well, that's something. Those are questions I want to help answer or questions that I actually want debated. I don't want to debate questions of, like, oh, should we just, uh, well, it's a question of, like, waiting for the right housing to be built or... Market rate housing is being, you know, gentrification is happening and then debating about whether this is really a good thing or not. And like, who are you to say to stop progress? Because this is progress. I want to be community owned. That's my priority. So I'm going to spend the rest of the hour. Let's look at the anarchist response to kind of not a solution to housing pol- uh, problems so much, uh, though I will... I'll get to that. We'll get to that too. But basically, the the general's gist is to join an autonomous tenants union, or check out the autonomous tenants union and use their resources. And they have a tactics handbook and all that, which I was sort of wanting to read at, but whatever. I was just looking for news, but it's a little out of date. Tenants' unions, uh I kind of covered some of that in a previous episode organizing during COVID and whatever. The tenants' unions are, like, rent strikes, uh, there was a call for rent strikes, right? But it was really just a PR campaign to kind of get it, like, just get it in people's minds that, like, you can just not pay rent as a political action, okay? Not just because you're lazy or you don't you want stiff landlords. Maybe we do want to do that, but... But for the most part, to to say it, it's it's just unjust that it's like look, and, and my the question like a lot of people can probably almost hit on this question, uh, the big question, which is you have you know a, a house that you can buy in the hood and develop it or rehab it, and your mortgage payment is roughly you know fifteen um, fifteen hundred dollars or something, and you have one tenant basically paying that much and paying for the mortgage payment, you have one tenant that pays and half of their rent basically goes to the tax bill uh, or the utility bill. And, And then you have another tenant that's just profit. And then whatever they pay is profit. And it could be asked by a sensible person, like if this renter is paying for the mortgage payment, then couldn't they buy their own house? Well, that's an excellent question. Why can't they do that? Well, because they don't have the extra collateral or they've always been a renter and thus don't have the credit. Many, many barriers exist. And also you need money uh, saved for down payment. If you're always paying that, that is your income, half your income. You ain't going to have no down payment. You're not going to have a savings. And you probably don't even have the time or energy to go house shopping. Maybe apartment shopping. but yeah. But there's a lot of barriers. A lot of bears, including the fact that a lot of banks don't even do housing mortgages anymore. You know, you have the you have a New York, you have Fannie Mae that does housing mortgages. They have to, the national, the Fed has to do it because banks just don't want to do it anymore. Risky investment. Who has the income to pay back the mortgage anymore when the job could be lost, you know, due to some crisis? But generally, let's talk about the anarchist. Perspective on Urban Issues. This is from Fast Company, amazingly. Written by Paul de This is a short read. Titled, and it was filed just earlier this year, uh, January. Anarchist architecture could help cities rebuild after COVID-19. Here's how. Anarchy's core values of mutual aid, self-organization, and voluntary association offer a more holistic approach to building and sustaining communities. Now, this article does, or this little quick read, does not go into how to institute these values on a municipal, regional, or national level. That's up to organizing to do. So if we want, you know, a city that has lower rents, we need to organize tenants, right? Just as if you want higher wages across the board, you need to organize workers, it cannot just be something that's legislated, like, okay, we're going to raise the minimum wage. It doesn't really help, because, I mean, it helps various ways, but the market can easily adapt and raise prices of everything that costs money, thus making the raises meaningless, as many conservatives rightfully point out. But that's an argument to go further. To go more socialist, not just Social Democrat, not just Democratic Socialist, to go full socialist, to say, okay, let's cut out the middleman. Why do people need wages to pay rents? Why do people need to pay rents? Because the property is privately owned and it needs to be owned uh, and profit needs to be made, right? Or, Or at the very least, the costs need to be covered. Ah, but rents are not just for covering costs. They're for making returns on investment, 7%. What if it was just one and a half percent what if you just institute that as a law all housing investments actually need to have a low return on investment and thus meaning that rent is going to be stabilized i mean it's basically that's what rent control is for that's what it does anyway enough tangents starting with paul's piece architecture and anarchy may not seem like the most obvious pairing but since anarchism emerged as a distinct kind of politics in the second half of the 19th century, it has inspired countless alternative communities. Crislandia in Copenhagen, Slab City in California, Lazade in French cu- countryside, and Grohefro in London all feature self-organized forms of building. On the, other hand, on the one hand, this includes remodeling existing structures, usually abandoned buildings. On the other, it can mean building entirely new spaces to accommodate individual liberty, and radical change in social organization. And that's what I meant with my little uh, diatribe aside there about why do people need to pay rent? Because of the organization of how we do building, that it's for profit, that's market-based, and not community-based. So the bigger answer is we need to make city building or city maintaining a community enterprise and not one that's Let's say if you're anarchistic, state-based, or if you're any kind of anti-capitalist, one that is based on capital investment, or rather, not capital investment, capital markets, capitalists. At its heart, anarchism is a politics of thought and action, and it reflects the original meaning of the ancient Greek word, anakari, meaning absence of government. All forms of anarchism are founded on self-organization or government from below. So it's not really an absence of governance, but uh, government. I guess that's, well, I, I said governance, absence of government, but really more talking about central authority. And I view it as a matter of unjustified authority, though certain strains of anarchism really like arguing about uh, how, how you justify hierarchy. You know That itself is a excuse for having uh, top-down authority. Anyway, uh, it is not about disorder, but rather a different order based on the principles of autonomy, voluntary association, self-organization, mutual aid, and direct democracy. That part's usually left out when it's a right winger talking about autonomy or you know more freedom. But freedom for who? Well, usually freedom for people with money. But if you add indirect democracy, then it's not just about who has money. So, for example, in Crislandia, this is in, in Copenhagen, Denmark, an intentional community and commune of about 850 to 1,000 people that was established in 1971, residents first squatted in abandoned military buildings and converted them into communal homes. In time, others built their own houses in an extraordinary diversity of styles and material that survived to this day. Even temporary anarchist projects, such as the 80s protest camp at Greenham Common in Berkshire, England, the more recent extinction, rebellion, occupations in London require the construction of makeshift shelters and basic infrastructure. He's also existed in occupying camps. There are also seeds that can grow, referring to why this is. A, he's published. He has a new book, Architecture and Anarchism: Building Without Authority. I look at how anarchist building projects have are often targeted by authorities because they're deemed illegal. Much like peep, certain people are deemed illegal, but how. As a result of this, there is a knock-on effect that casts people who self-build as somehow exceptional, driven by desires that are simply alien to the rest of us. But that, I think, misses the point of anarchist politics that underlie such projects. And it also fails to recognize that such principles are grounded in values that are shared much more widely. For example, the late British anarchist Colin Ward always argued the values behind anarchism in action were rooted in things we all do. He was particularly interested in how people seemed to have an innate desire to share time and space without expecting any financial remuneration. As part of his work, he often embraced everyday subjects such as community allotments, children's playgrounds, holiday camps, and housing co-ops. He had a strong and optimistic belief in anarchism as an always-present but often latent force in social life that simply needed nurturing to grow. Ward argued for a way of building that was focused on changing the role of citizens from recipients to participants, quote, so that they too have an active part to play in the building of towns and cities. It flips the script on, you know, landlords, they provide the housing. How? Some reason architectural practices, for example, Assemble in the UK, Rectus Abanus in Spain, and Rambler Berlin in Germany, have developed ways of working that are almost entirely focused on such a model participation. Indeed, in September 2019, Ramba Berlin built a utopia station in Milton Keys in U.K. This was a structure that combined steel scaffolds, metal staircases, striped awnings and salvage windows to create a three-story space. Inside, visitors were asked to provide their own suggestions for future urban development, which were made, then made into models and exhibits. Such a playful and joyful approach to citizen participation stands in stark contrast to the often dour and depressing way we've generally asked to comment, that we as citizens are asked to comment on buildings being planned. And worse, in my own place of residence, uh, it's like we're going to propose something and then we'll have a public comment, people can react. It's all very reactionary, not democratic. Because it's also based on who's louder, or who shows up, who's paying attention. Uh, a different approach would involve radical reshaping of the values that hold up our politics. Here, anarchism has much to contribute. Sorry, I skipped the paragraph. Last year, the UK government published its post-COVID-19 recovery plan to build back better with its emphasis on securing economic growth. Because you know, we just need to grow more. The report completely fails to address the catastrophic environmental consequences of such an approach. Its core values of mutual aid, self-organization, and voluntary association offer a much more holistic notion of what constitutes progress. You know, like, are people happy or not? On a personal level, I have found urban allotments to be places where the contours of such an everyday revolution can be felt. These are areas of land set aside by local authorities for residents to grow food in exchange for a nominal annual rent. Although I've never met anyone in, you know, and so to contrast with that, um, with say a land bank or say the city has a bunch of vacant land or vacant lots, and they're always concerned about selling it to people selling it. Why not rent it? You know, it's like, you know, because it's a big commitment to buy vacant land, especially when there's this tagline of like, "Oh, we also want you, you need we need you to development. We're not going to sell it to you unless you already have a plan for it. But, but you can actually use it for gardening, or build a playground, things like that, make it an actual pocket park. But you know people need resources to do that, and um, some some nonprofits, you know, they, they need to get the grant first and all that. Uh, maybe that's something that build uh, Building Blocks Together can do, because that's kind of what her model is kind of looking towards, a local activist person, or rather social entrepreneur, caller. Although I've never met anyone in my own allotment who identifies as an anarchist. So basically, I think allotment is just a British version of a community garden, is kind of what it sounds like. So, But these allotments are, in essence, common spaces within cities, sites deliberately kept off the market and filled with more or less provisional structures, such as ready-made or self-built sheds or greenhouses. I think that would be the problem, though, like if you're renting a land from the city, like they wouldn't allow you to build something on it. Although you're not allowed to build a dwelling on an allotment, it's not difficult to transfer an underlining principle to other cities, sites, or cities. As I look out of my bedroom window to the allotments just beyond my home, I often wonder why it's not possible to set aside land for other kinds of communal activities, even housing. It's in places like allotments that the otherwise radical nature of alternative possibilities is seen. Therein lies the hope of building emancipatory, inclusive, ecological, and egalitarian future. This would be building back better. So Paul is a lecturer in architecture at the University College London. And it's republished from The Conversation. Aha. So to follow up on that, a little bit uh, from the libcom.org archive. Little excerpt from Colin Ward himself. I did read his kind of reader, at least most of it. I took some notes. But here's the boilerplate version. This is from his book, Housing and Anarchist Approach, published by Freedom Press in 76 which is a collection of essays on housing and the built environment from the 20th century British anarchist and town planner Colin Ward. So he's a well-known authority on housing and as an anarchist propagandist. How do these two themes combine? This book brings together articles and addresses covering 30 years of advocacy of an anarchist approach to housing. It's kind of like a book review, but also a summary. So first, this first uh, section is direct action. The first section includes his now classic account of the post-war squatters movement and relates it to the current significance of the squatters in Britain and elsewhere. Human needs identifies the missing component in public housing policies that includes the involvement of tenants and anticipates today's anxieties about the social effects of imposing official policies on people whose own perception of their housing needs has been systematically ignored. Self-help includes a count of do-it-yourself housing in Britain and abroad, remarkable achievements of the squatter settlements in the cities, the poor built in the third world, sketches the outlines of an anarchist approach to the city. Professionals or people? Is the question raised in the fourth section? What went wrong with architecture and planning? Can we transform them from being the concern of a bureaucratic elite to a populist and popular activity? And the last section is dweller control, which argues that the only future for, the public, for public housing, whether in our decaying cities or on new cul-de-sacs, is the tenants to take over. Best long-term ver- way of doing that is to organize. You organize tenants' union, and that tenants' union eventually gains power to um, – enough power and support and resources to um, – Maybe they bargain, they collect, like, as workers collectively bargain for a contract, they collectively bargain for rent to own leases. So that eventually, all the tenants are renting to own and they're, um, and thus turn their housing into a co op. Now, this is usually the case where you organize tenants within one building, but let's say you're in a city that doesn't have big apartment buildings. Let's say you're talking about a block, but all the houses are owned by one landlord. Well, that's basically the same thing. Or maybe they're owned by different landlords. Maybe there's three landlords, but they own like three houses each um, or, you know, buildings across the city. So maybe you go to all of the properties they own and organize each of their tenants, you know, try to get them, you know, to, to work together. But let's say you want to do it geographically, maybe. Or across a whole city, you have a citywide tenants union and whoever joins is basically well, maybe it's more about I'm, see, I'm I'm literally just spitballing like a strategy here for myself. Um, maybe it's more about organizing people to make that perk, that permanent real estate cooperative. So you have a bunch of tenants, you have them as community do paying members, you can afford 10 dollars and eventually you build up a, a cash of money to to build one building. Or rather, buy out as, as I've covered in previous episodes about worker buyouts, that the workers, former co-op, you know, for like, uh, I literally covered this a few episodes ago. Workers at a coffee shop uh, unionized, and uh, then by unionizing, the owner basically calls it quits and says, like, I want to sell it now, but I'll sell it to you for this amount of money. And then they got that amount of money through a loan, as well as fundraising from the community, getting some community stakeholders together. Or rather, community investment and boom, they own the business. Can tenants do that? Of course. It's kind of the same process. You just need maybe a minimum of 10 tenants or whatever, how many tenants are on a block or a few buildings or whatever. But the point is that you build out, you know, just as the perk is able to own three buildings so far with the amount of capital they've raised through their dues and donors and, and, uh, and investors, a tenant union could do the same thing or a tenant organization, which is something I kind of wish, but we, we have a tenant organization in Albany. They're mostly putting on fires. It's mostly, and they are partly funded by the county as um, one of their big donors. They provide court assistance to tenants. So to some eviction defense in court, uh, stop evictions or unlawful or unjust evictions, and some other things, but they're not really interested in organizing tenants to fight back against landlords or whatever. They're more about just um, they're a tenant org to help tenants in emergency situations, which is what all kind of capitalist nonprofits are kind accountable of about. But anyway, I'm going far afield there. I want to wrap up by talking about one of my favorite people. Colin Ward is also up there as far as like architects or architecturally minded people that are my heroes. Uh, the other, though, of course, Colin Ward, like, like did, does he lecture? Does he, there, is there audio of him? He was more mid-century. Here's someone who recently passed. His name is Christopher Alexander. Here's their obituary for Christopher Alexander, an architect and theorist who believed in creating human-centered buildings, drawing on new tech and ancient traditions. He has died at the age of 85. He saw buildings and cities as living frameworks for human beings. Through designing, building, teaching, and writing, he sought to provide a complete working alternative to our present ideas about architecture, building, and planning. Kind of a anti-modernist. And he's kind of like, if you're going to be anti-modernist, you should be following Alexander's. Because he wasn't just a neoclassical kind of guy. That was, that's reactionary and conservative. But here's um, from Project for Public Spaces, which I think is like his his foundation or whatever, but maybe not. Not a eulogy, because this is actually, I'm reading from 2008. This is just his, like, their wiki for him. He's an emeritus professor of architecture at Berkeley. He is also the author of numerous articles and books, including The Nature of Order, an essay on the art building and the nature of the universe. Yeah, that, that is a heady title. I've read most of it, by the way. This is a four-volume compilation representing 30 years of work and offering three vital perspectives on our world. One, a scientific one. Two, a perspective based on beauty and grace. And three, a common-sense perspective based on our intuitions about everyday life. The four books in the series include, first one which is called The Phenomenon of Life. The second is called The Process of Creating Life. Third, A Vision of a Living World. And the fourth is called The Luminous Ground. Now, these are at my public library, across the street from me, so I have read a majority of these four books. It is quite the slog, because he does repeat himself quite often uh, in these books. He's basically repeating over and over in various different ways, because he's really trying to get the point across <laughs> of, of what he's talking about. And it's, uh, it's genius. Uh, it's, uh, it's hard to put into words quickly. Just what an impact this book should have, but it's basically like it's a theory of everything, because uh, as he as he put you know as the title says, the nature of order, an essay on the building art of building, and the nature of the universe. Now, that whole like the process of creating life, that that title there, he's not just talking about evolutionary biology, he's also talking about designing a building, but he links them both together, by which he means the process of creating life. Whether it be biological or the creative process of a normal human or any human, it's a universal process to me. I'm the kind of person who's kind of objective about it. I just, I have probably every artist friend I have disagrees with me about this, but I believe that there's a universal creative process. Whenever an artist is asked what about their creative process, they're basically all saying the same thing. The follow up question is like, what's your personal input? That's always going to be a different answer granted that but the whole how what's your creative process unless they're asking what you personally do the creative process is always the same there's a general series of steps <laughs> unless the creative process is I bang my head against the table until ideas come out but it, it's it's like um it's a material he takes a materialist approach to talking about spirituality in a way that I have never encountered before. And it's almost like it, like he, he kind of puts it like spiritual experience is when, oh yeah, he frames as like, he calls it wholeness and there's types of art that make you feel, that give a sense of wholeness. When we're healthy, we have a sense of wholeness. Obviously throwing new age of words or holistic, you know, and being is more holistic, you know, whatever. But anyway, he's a leader of new urbanism, how through um, the book The Pattern Language and the website, patternlanguage.com, Alexander and his colleagues at the Center for Environmental Structure have built a movement which, in their words, lays the basis for an entirely new approach. At The core of this movement is the idea that people should design homes, streets, and communities for themselves, which is an anti-capitalist sentiment, by the way. This idea may imply a radical transformation of the architectural profession, but it emerges quite simply from the observation that most of the beautiful places of the world were not made by architects, but by people. Not by professionals, right, but by classes, by communities. In 2002-2003, Alexander has pursued his interest in community development through two projects in particular, a... uh, redevelopment of downtown Duncanville Texas and the creation of a new community in the hills of Brookings Oregon I have to look those up myself but here's a it gives a this uh, site gives a general biography but I want to get to the perspectives of his four like his magnum opus you know um, it's truly like a oh in his own biography is called the evolution of a new paradigm in architecture published in 83. But here's the perspective on the waning minutes. First is the phenomenon of life. He proposes a scientific view of the world in which all space matter uh, has perceivable degrees of life and sets this understanding of order as an intellectual basis for a new architecture. With this view as a foundation, we can ask precise questions about what must be done to create more life in our world, whether in a room or on a doorknob, or in a neighborhood, or on the regional scale. He introduces the concept of living structure, basing it upon his theories of centers and wholeness, and defines fifteen properties from which, according to observation, all wholeness is built. He argues that living structure is at once both personal and structural. Mm. Second book he has is creating process of creating life, in which he goes over how, in the twentieth century, our society was locked into deadly processes which create our current built environment, processes of which most people were not really aware and did not question. Despite their best efforts and intentions, architects and planners working within these processes could not achieve a living built environment. In this book, Alexander puts forward a fully developed theory of living process. It defines conditions for a process to be living, that is capable of generating that thing he calls living structure. He shows how such processes work and how they may be created. At the core of the new theory is the theory of structure-preserving transformations, meaning that you can do something, and then you can do something after it. You don't hit dead ends. Uh, skipping ahead. Vision of a Living World is his third book. Providing hundreds of examples of buildings and places, his, this volume demonstrates and proposes forms for large buildings, public spaces, and everything from ornament, detail, color. With these examples, laypeople, architects, and anyone, students, are able to make this new framework we- real for themselves and for their own lives and understand it. And the fourth one, luminous ground the mechanistic thinking and the conquest and investment oriented tracks of houses, condominiums, and offices in the 20th century have dehumanized our cities and lives. How are spirit, soul, emotion, feeling to be introduced into a building or a street? In this final text, Alexander breaks away completely from the one-sided mechanical model buildings and neighborhoods as mere assemblages of technically generated interchangeable parts. First, my profound thanks for listening, which is a skill as important as talking, so I plan to listen to any constructive feedback, ideas for the show, stories, topics, or rantings you message on Facebook, Twitter, at 3 Left Show. You can also email at 3 left show at gmail. This program is made as a part of Independent Community Radio, so support us materially, along with other producers and citizen journalists, with a donation or membership to WCAALP at grandarts.org. Capitalism doesn't value this work, so to support myself personally, become a member of my Patreon, which is also at threeleftshow. Support the show with your time by telling others you believe would be interested, liking and sharing and checking in on our social media pages, as word of mouth is our best advertising. This episode and the last 10 are broadcast on most podcasting apps, like Stitcher, Apple Store, and Google Play. But a full archive of the podcast, along with links, sources, and notes, are found at threelefts.news. Of course, the most important thing is, is to put the ideas, thinking, and projects talked about here in practice yourself. So be well, keep it rad, and keep waving the flags of the three lefts.